Before we start, let's um, pray together. Father, I pray that as we work through this passage tonight, your spirit would be at work. I pray that it would be convicting us, growing our trust in your gospel, and growing our dependence on your strength, not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, many of you probably remember in 2010, the, in the United States, there was the mortgage crisis that crashed the economy, the housing market in, 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 the, in the States. There was a man called Michael Burry, among several other investors, who saw it coming a ways off and was preparing and warning everyone. The reason I, I um, single out Michael Burry is because he was known for getting around the office barefoot, so he was a favourite and out of all the options there were. But uh, he, he was um, one among several investors, but only a few, a, a small few of them who saw this coming. They realised that there were lots of, lots of problems in the, in the system, won't go into the ec- detailed economic explanation, but all of his colleagues thought he was a fool. They said there's nothing wrong with the market. Real estate uh, is one of the most... reliable, safest investments you can have. Nonetheless, he persisted and he he found a way to bet against the market. Everyone kept insisting he was being stupid. But eventually, what he predicted happened. There was a a market, the market bubble popped. He made himself and his company a a very large amount of money. And these other people, they just didn't accept the message of this impending crash. But in retrospect, even though he was called a fool, it became quite clear that he was thinking ahead and he was actually quite wise in what he saw. Maybe part of the reason people were so, other people were so slow to recognise what was going on is that they were perhaps too distracted with their own theme, schemes and investments and whatever else was going on. They were so fixated on their own plans, had their blinkers on and didn't see the bigger picture the way him and several others did. And so his warnings to so many other so-called wise investors seemed foolish. But in the end, his message turned out to be the truth and their wisdom turned out to be the real foolishness. Now, this passage today, it reminds us that as Christians, we are in a kind of similar situation to what Michael Berry was with his message of the market, but it's dialed up to a whole other level, a cosmic level, um, but we also carry a message that the world calls foolishness. Paul's message to the Corinthians then, in the passage we look at, we look, that James read out for us before, is not to let yourselves get caught up into the world's way of thinking, into their idea of wisdom, and get distracted from the big picture of God's plan and God's wisdom. We saw back in chapter 1 that the church in Corinth was divided, so early in chapter 1, the church was divided getting bogged down, looking over who were the best leaders, who, who was the better church leader, that, who they wanted to follow, and there was all these disputes over that. And they were losing sight of their unified faith in the same message over these 
distractions from worldly perspectives, such over, over achievements and impressiveness. The passage today, Paul tells the people to stop getting distracted by these human disputes over leaders. Redouble your focus on the power of the cross and the work of the Spirit. So before we go into depth in the passage, I want to start by saying that many of humankind's achievements, though, are pretty impressive. If you think about where we've come from way back when we were banging rocks together to light fires so that we could survive the night to now we all have electricity just at the end of our fingertips for just about anything you can think of. We have space travel, you know, we have modern medicine. It's amazing the things we've discovered with science and engineering and, and artistry. Like the level of education that is just standard um, is incredible. Humanity has achieved some impressive things. None of these things are bad. Whether or not they can be used for bad means is a, is a whole other thing aside, but in and of themselves there are many great things um, that we have done that are part of how God's made us. God made us to create, to discover, to learn, to, to steward and bring order to creation. The trouble is how quickly, how quickly we collectively as as humanity, and also on an individual level, how quickly we become conceited because of the, and become distracted by these achievements, right? We quickly think we are better than God. We quickly think that we don't need him or we forget about him entirely and zone in on our own success and our own, our own ideas of, of what's great, Knowledge of God and his own plans seem irrelevant. One Corinthians chapter one, verses eighteen. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I remember once sitting at a cafe uh, and across from me was a young mother with her son and she was trying to get he was taking some of his first steps and she was trying to get video footage of it and I remember she was getting so frustrated in what was like a beautiful part of his development uh, when she he would start taking a few steps and she'd pull out the video camera and he'd, he'd get exhausted and fall down and she'd miss it and then she'd get frustrated with him and say come on come on try again and he doesn't understand he's just sitting around he's he's over he's tired and she'd get, rather than celebrating and having a joyful experience of, of participating in this with him, she's getting too caught up and frustrated she didn't get the footage. Anyway, she'd give up, put the phone down, go back to eating. A few minutes later, he'd get his energy back and the whole thing, he'd get up, walk, the whole thing would happen again. And it was just crazy. She's, this, getting this video was so important to her. 
She was so fixated on it, she was missing out on the whole joy of the experience that was happening right in front of her. That's essentially, though, what we're doing when we get fixated on our own status, success, achievement according to the world. So focused on our own measures of greatness and wisdom that we miss the big picture of what God's doing. To the point where we lose focus on the incredible news that Jesus came, died for our sins so that we can be saved from death. Here Paul tells the church in Corinth to snap out of it. Now, this happens, I've said before, it happens collectively on a global scale. But I just want to point out, personally, even as Christians, we're all guilty of doing this together. How can we be tempted to gauge when we're going pretty well in life? Do we perhaps try and seek recognition or praise for our status or our image compared to other people? You know, tempted to puff ourselves up by comparing our achievements to those of others? Or maybe the opposite's true. Um, Perhaps when we're not doing so well, can we be tempted to compare ourselves to those who are more successful? People who look healthier, wealthier, better careers, seem to have happier families. In both situations, we're doing the same thing. We're making comparisons with others. When we're feeling down, we compare ourselves with those who seem to have it so much better. When we're proud, we compare ourselves with those who seem to be worse off. But what's our measuring stick? It's other people, isn't it? According to worldly criteria. What does Paul say to that? Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Paul says, so that no one may boast before him. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't get distracted by what the world calls wise. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think on your outlines here, on the second point, I've got something like the uncanny plan of God or something like that. I don't know what I was thinking. Cross that out and put the, fo- the folly of the cross. That's the point two. Here, Paul, uh, to help the Corinthians let go of all these distractions that they're getting caught up with, he reminds them why so many people in the world still don't accept God's wisdom. He reminds them why, as Christians, we are different and why we should think differently. Look at verse 22 and 23. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. As Rob helpfully pointed out um, earlier tonight, just pause and think for a moment what we actually believe as Christians, that God, the Son, came down to earth 
to die at the hands of men, a humiliating death on the cross. In the culture, the Greco-Roman culture at the time, that was a death reserved for failed like rebel leaders, uprising leaders. It was humiliating. Uh, he was killed by the Jews, which were the people he supposedly came to save. He was abandoned by his disciples. We, we believe that the Son of God came and died the same death as, as a failed criminal. So that the, to the Greeks and Romans, it just makes no sense that we would want to follow him. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. On the same note, don't be tempted to think that it's any less bizarre just because we know why he came. To pay for our sins. We know Jesus came to pay for our sins. But that's the part the Jews can't understand. Right? Just think about it. We're talking about God, the almighty creator of the universe, coming down to be born as a baby, getting his nappy changed, learning how to walk and talk, going through puberty, having acne, and then to die a humiliating death on the cross. But not only that, to die for our sins. God, the holy, majestic, almighty, that's, doesn't, that just seems unjust. That he defiled himself with our impurity, our, our sinfulness. And isn't God merciful anyway? Can't he forgive? Isn't that how he does it in the Old Testament? How does this make sense? It's bizarre when you think about it. The, the holy God dying for our sins. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, and yet, each of us here who have believed this message, we somehow know that it is both wise and beautiful. We see, as Paul does in verse 25, that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. While some people it might seem foolish to follow Jesus in what appears to be a defeat, while to others it might seem wrong to suggest that a holy God should come down uh, to die on the cross, that it might seem unnecessary when he can be merciful, it might seem unjust for him to take our punishment. To us who believe this truth, we know that the cross is actually where God's justice and mercy come together. The cross was necessary for God to be both just and merciful. And it didn't end in failure. Through the cross, Christ is exalted in the resurrection. Verses, look at me now at um, chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Paul says, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. 
God's plan was unexpected. It might even seem foolish to those who have not understood it, but God knows what he's doing. I'm sure all of you have at some point, if all of you who follow Jesus have at some point felt, experienced others thinking that you're foolish for doing so. Um, perhaps for things like spending a substantial amount of your time, a substantial amount of your week learning from a book written by ancient people, a substantial amount of our time singing songs about a guy who died thousands of years ago, potentially even giving a portion of your money to support mission and church work for, for people to keep teaching what it says in this book. It does seem crazy from a worldly point of view. Back in chapter 1, Paul quotes from Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 14. Let me read a little bit more from that passage. Isaiah 29, 14 to 16. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pots say to the potter, you know nothing? I once heard this, it's a bit of a silly joke, but it gives the point, makes the point really well. This joke about a, a group of scientists who one day decide that humanity has progressed so far, we do so well, that we don't need the old anymore. You know, we can we do space travel, we can build molecules, we can deconstru- deconstruct atoms. They get to the point where they can clone themselves and do all these amazing things. And they say, all right, let's try and do what God does and make human life from dust. And they set out and they break the dust down into like the barest atoms and build things up from the ground and make amino chain, branch branch chain amino acids and proteins and all the different things. I don't understand biology, but the scientists do. And they make it happen and they suddenly get intelligent life and say, look, look how great we are. We don't need God. Does God even really need to exist? And the moment they finish speaking, a booming voice calls down, go find your own dirt out of heaven. It's a silly joke, but I think it really quite simply makes the point that everything we know and everything we can understand, it's part of creation. And God's the creator. There's nothing, nothing within our knowable frame of reference world that we can use to know or understand him. Do you ever think we could truly comprehend the thoughts, the wisdom of a being like that? Again, in Isaiah uh, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is so completely beyond 
our comprehension, our ability to understand, that our, our tiny human brains are totally blind to his wisdom. A point where, according to our own intelligence, his plans can seem foolish and bizarre. So the world can't understand why the gospel is wonderful, why it's beautiful, why it's wise. Because we can't understand God. We can't understand his being, his greatness, his holiness. And if we can't understand that, we can't understand why sin is such a big deal. We can't understand why Christ needed to die because of what our sin does against him. And we can't understand why that message is such wonderful news. And yet again, somehow, each of us here who believes in Jesus has heard and accepted the gospel as wisdom. How? Look at chapter 2, verse 10. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Do you know when you, te- you, you tell a funny story to a friend and, or to a group of people or something and you tell it and you just get like blank response and it's super awkward <laughs> and it, you just feel like, oh, was had to be there moment. Have everyone had that? I also have a, a similar, you know, you, sorry, you, even though you tell and you can retell the events exactly as they happen, there's something about having to have experienced it If the person doesn't experience it, they can't get why it's funny. I personally find I have a bit of a strange sense of humour that even I don't understand sometimes, but there are things that can just tickle me and get me in stitches of laughter and I can't explain why to another person. You just, the only way you can understand is if you like borrowed my brain for a day, right? I don't know if there's things that you can relate to personally about yourself that you just don't know how to explain to other people. But I think that's kind of what these verses here are saying. It's saying, who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? We can't ever truly know or understand every, some things about each other without having experienced it ourselves, let alone understand the higher thoughts and the higher wisdom of this incredible being beyond creation of our God. We see in verse 12, we have, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we can understand what God has freely given us. That's incredible when you think about it. What we've received, um, what what we've actually received is the spirit from God, so that we can begin to understand some of his higher thoughts and higher wisdom that we would have no hope of understanding. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. So, when we share the gospel with each other, 
or with others. We don't actually need to be concerned with how wise we appear. We don't need to be concerned with how impressive or articulate we seem. But we need to teach the word truthfully and prayerfully and recognise that the wisdom we are sharing and offering through the word is God's wisdom, not our own. It's by the work of his spirit that people will come to recognise it for what it is. I think that's a great comfort, isn't it? Just this week, I've had several conversations with a few different people um, about how when having gospel conversations, particularly with non-Christians, how it can be, it can be so easy to get so cons- more concerned with how what I say will affect the way they think about me. Will they think um, of me as foolish or actually more common for myself is will they, if I speak something that's true from the Bible but is maybe unpopular in our, in our current culture, will I be seen as unkind and unloving? And I might even justify maybe not wanting to be honest because I don't want people to think of Christians as unkind and unloving. I think even Paul felt that way sometimes. Back in verse 3 and 4, he says, I came to you with fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You know, the reality is, even if we feel worried about how we look, there is is no truth more loving, no truth more wise than the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's there. Paul knew it, and so he persisted. We should too. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. You know, the world, the world is going to actually find the truth of the gospel unattractive until they receive the Spirit. That's what it's most held here. But once we have received it, we don't need to fear the judgments of the world because we trust in a greater wisdom and a greater judge. So if you can relate to feeling worried about what others will think when you share the message truthfully, be bold. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So friends, let's be humble by this passage tonight. When it comes to the gospel, our wisdom, our impressiveness are effectively irrelevant in some way. I mean, of course we want to apply ourselves and understand God's word so we can teach it accurately, faithfully, truthfully. But its power doesn't lie in our ability to look or sound wise. That should also convict us with each other, to be unified and gracious in the way we love and treat each other, remembering that we all have received the same message and it's it's plain foolishness to get caught up in comparisons like the Corinthians were wanting to appear great or envying each other's greatness. 
No, we want to encourage each other. Direct each other's attention back to the message that brings us together, which God has revealed through the Spirit to impart wisdom among the mature. That foolish and yet magnificent message of Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing message of Jesus' death and resurrection that frees us from sin. Thank you that through your spirit, we can see and understand the beauty of this good news. Lord, please help us to trust in your wisdom and your strength. And help us not to get distracted by our own judgment, but to trust the power of your gospel and to proclaim it boldly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.